Welcome to Through the Corporate Glass, a podcast that explores career choices. Welcome to another episode of Through the Corporate Glass. I'm your host Ashwini. Becoming an entrepreneur is a difficult choice, one that opens doors to a lot of opportunities but also to a lot of risks. Have you wondered about the thought process that drives one to be a founder and the trade-offs involved in the process? To share the exciting journey, we have Rajan Bala with us, who is a senior manager at Amazon in Toronto. He co-founded Haiku Labs, and he is also currently the founder of Aramanai, a nonprofit organization that helps entrepreneurs in underprivileged communities. He's been a Silicon Valley veteran, worked for a lot of very successful companies in the valley. I've known Rajan to be an extremely energetic and compassionate person who's always looking for ways to improve the world around him. Welcome to our podcast Rajan and thank you so much for making time for us. Oh wow, that's a big introduction. Thank you Ashwini. <laughs> extremely well deserved too. <laughs> I'm going to start by trying to understand your motivation behind co-founding Haiku Labs. I know you were Uh, on a very successful career path in a big company at the point that you made this decision could you walk us through your decision tree and how you took the leap of faith absolutely um growing up i'm i'm a curious kid in the family i like to go open apart things and try to reassemble things and build things myself yeah. and when i was in university i had similar entrepreneurial aspirations wherever i have an opportunity i look at what are the problems that exist how can i solve it i would put down a bucket list of things that i would want to go build there were cases where i would partner with students from my class with ideas and see hey can we go build this as an example this is way before iot is a thing i used uh, something known as the x10 technology it's it's like the zigbee of back then mm-hmm. where you can talk to devices and sensors through your ac line I was prototyping a you know smart home using these extend sensors and extend modules connecting to like smart bulbs garage door openers and then communicate with them through instant messenger in order to make it real I enrolled myself into a graduate program that eventually became my masters in engineering and back in the day this is I'm talking about you know 2003 2004 in Ottawa Canada there's not a a huge support system for entrepreneurs i decided to move to san francisco bay area because you know that's where the whole ecosystem is brewed and that's where you have the vc support etc so all along the long term plan is to build a company it's just that when when i moved to uh, sunnyvale that's where i met you uh, at palm i'm i'm still trying to you know establish my connections establish a network of people that i should work with and at the same time i entertain ideas with people that's how my co-founder rob catcher who was a product manager at palm we started talking you've always had a passion for identifying problems and also for building the solutions yourself so for someone who's looking to be an entrepreneur how important do you think it is to have a mindset to constantly learn and build solutions and evolve as you go i i like solving problems right you you can be solving problems working for another company 
Yes. You can be solving a problem as an academia. You can be solving problem as an entrepreneur. So there's risk tolerance, right? And not everyone made equally. So some people would be happy if they have a stable paying job, provided the problem solving opportunity, they'll be happy. And then there are other people who's like, no, no, I want to go build this product and sell it to the customers and make money out of it. It's another bucket of people. So everyone could be an entrepreneur. It's just that, do they want to take the risk right now? It's the old adage of, do you want two birds in the bush or you want to have that one bird on your hand? Yeah, yeah. So if people are happy with holding onto that one bird on hand, that's probably a good lifestyle as well. But I wanted to find those two birds in the bush. So I'm willing to take the risk. Yeah, I think that that's a fantastic way of putting it. Essentially, it comes down to, are you happy with some guarantees in life? Or you're willing to take more of a risk for a potentially higher reward? Given that when the idea is in its infancy, it's so much harder to convince people to actually take on this risk. Is that something you found difficult when you were working on Haiku? And how did you navigate this? Selling the idea and socializing with your network is a good way to find co-founders or team of people to come work with you. Just like how Rob and I have been debating around these. Really, for Haiku, it's, a, it's an idea that came out of Rob and his house. Rob, my co-founder, is married and have uh, three kids. His wife is stay-at-home mom. She's busy cooking. And, and whenever she is preparing breakfast for the kids, she will run out of things. When people are busy doing things, it's hard for them to write it on a piece of paper what they need to buy or pull out a mobile app. They resort to just keeping it in their memory. As right. the day goes on, when they're busy, they either end up forgetting it or they end up buying the same thing twice. Right. That's where the whole, whole idea started. It was really trying to solve Rob's wife, Lori's problem at hand. We realized that problem also exit for other people. Rob pitched the idea and I'm like, yeah, this is a great problem to solve. And then I joined force with them. Nice. This actually is perfect. You had your ideal user in mind and then kind of went from there and expanded. Right. Did you actually have to get a lot of data for the product market fit? Yeah, we've done some studies using other app applications already in the market like Wonderlist and Avocado and Evernote. People use different things right. and we were doing studies to find out how they consume it or how they use it. What we found is all of us who use smartphones are consumers. People have difficulty picking up the phone, unlock it, open the app, and then type what they need. Let's say if you and someone need to keep exchanging messages back and forth, typing a bunch of stuff, at some point you would resort to picking another phone and talking to them. Right, right. Um, because it's easier. Similarly, we found for the shopping list, people, although they downloaded these apps, there was a friction to input stuff, but they are happy to just read it and consume it. So that led us to not be just an app only product. Mm -hmm. And then that also opened us up into thinking about, okay, you know, busy people in the kitchen, it's messy. They don't want to use phone to put stuff in, but they're okay to read stuff. So what can we do? And then we, we looked at the conventional way of creating a shopping list. Mm -hmm. 
which is essentially that you know sticky pad and pen on right. your fridge. Mm -hmm. How do we make the shopping list creation as closest to the conventional way so that people will adopt to the product? We built a prototype of the device, scotch tape things, shoved it into a little plastic and gave it to Rob's wife. Now she used it, got feedback. And then what we did is we built about 150 devices mm -hmm. and we gave it away to similar demography to see how they're using it and identify what other issues exist and how can we improve it. So that 150 or so people validated the market we're going into. That validated the hypothesis that, yes, we need a device. Right. No, we can't be just a mobile app only product. That led to the, I guess, incarnation of Haiku. We built about 50,000, 60,000 devices wow. since uh, inception. Just like any product, time is of essence. We wanted to get to market as fast as possible, which means we were trying to build things using off-the-shelf components at the expense of high cost. Right. Right. So product market fit, we we've you know went with like an initial thousand devices. We sold out. We were on the Today Show, like the breakfast series, where they showcased Haiku for like a good maybe 10 seconds or 15 seconds on our launch. Yeah. Uh, that made all of our devices sold out by like end of the day. Nice. So that's another validation that people have this problem and they wanted a solution. It looks like you uh, did some level of incremental product market fitting as well. And uh, when it came to raising money, because considering you had a hardware device in picture, you would need investment. Do you think there's a metric that VCs go by for a product market fit? Raising capital is difficult. Yeah. especially for a consumer product, especially for a consumer product that is hardware. Yeah. The most difficult part is to get connected with a, a first VC. The very first venture capitalist connection is the, the hard, hardest. Mm -hmm. And once you get through that and establish a term sheet, mm -hmm. then it becomes a slightly easier to get the second ones, like the follow-on ones. And this is where I would recommend entrepreneurs to go work with the incubator or an accelerator. Incubators like Hacker Dojo or Y Combinators uh, of the world. The more you go take part in those, one, they will expose you to investors. Some investors look through only these accelerators to invest. So for us, Rob invested his own money. We got some friends and family investment. And then eventually we got connected to Jerry Yang of Yahoo, Murado Ventures through one of the incubators that we were. They gave us the first check. We got about, I think, 750K check, uh, seed fund. And that's what got us all motivated and moving towards uh, production. Now, yes, hardware is the difficult part and hardware is where you would burn out all of your capital. We were able to raise uh, 750 at the beginning, but if you're starting another company, I would recommend you raise more because that's like bulk of your money is gonna go towards hardware. Because when you're a startup and you're working with the contract manufacturers, they don't know who you are. They want cash in advance to build anything. So if you're building 10,000 devices, that's going to burn out most of your fund. Now, that's the, the flow of how to get the fund and use the fund. But in terms of what metrics would they look at to decide if an investor wants a fund, often investors look at the, the team, people, who's building it. Is it a solo founder? Is it a you know, bunch of founders in the team? Is only one of them controlling the show? Is, do the, the founders have 
track records? Do the founders have complementary skills? They look at the team structure. And the other is around, is the product they're trying to build solving a real problem? Right. Yeah, I think that that's a very fair point. That actually brings me to another question. You mentioned that the founder profile actually makes a difference. Would you say there's an advantage to actually founding a company later in your career once you've built some kind of track record um, for the company? Or? So, I mean, um, statistically, you know, they say that the most successful companies have founders in their 40s. Oh, right? okay. Interesting. So that's probably because of these experiences. They go through experiences and they molded themselves. Yeah. But then at the same time, I've seen successful startups where people had no prior experience. And there are cases where people have, you know, started their career, you know, either they worked for a couple of years or three years, and then they found it. For example, Instacart founders, they're in the thirties when they founded it. And similarly, PagerDuty, the founders worked for a few years in their industry, and then they founded it. While the experience helps, it's also about, do you have what it takes to build a company? And do you have that persistence to keep going with it? What would you say is the most challenging part of the entrepreneur journey? Is it raising money or is it convincing people? It's raising funds is hard. Like I said, first one is difficult. And then even the next, it's it's going to be difficult. You have to convince people and sell the idea and they have to believe in it. So we, we struggled raising money. The other is more around convincing people to come and work for you right. at the lowest salary possible. Yes. Right. Silicon Valley is competitive. I, I still remember when I first joined Palm, next couple of days, I started getting emails through LinkedIn about other possible opportunities. Right. 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 And then people jump around companies every year for a 10% increase. Right. Now, in that market, trying to hire a an engineer or a leader for the lowest possible salary is difficult. But we did find a lot of great talent. Our team was built up to about 10, 11 people at some point. And they're all like enthusiastic around startups and want to build something. There, there are some people who want to do startup and it's, it's easier to get those people provided you're able to sell the idea and it's compelling. Yeah. And actually, it's equally important for the startup to find a really good core team. So how did you yes. identify the right engineers? Absolutely. That's a great question. I, and I, I try to see if there's a way we can replicate that, but it's difficult to do it at scale. So what we've done for the startup is we took an approach of try before you buy type of model where we would do a full interview loop, just like any corporate structure is. And then what we often do is before we extend an offer, we would say, hey, here's an SDK. If it's a software backend guy, we're like, here's an SDK for our backend stuff. Can you go build this and say, okay, over the next three to four weeks, you go build this feature and you have access to us. You have access to documentation, engage with us and then come back to us before the next three, four weeks with your solution. And then we'll go from there. They're incentivized to do the work through cash for the time. And then if they're super passionate about what we are doing, chances are they're going to deliver on what we asked and some more. A great example is we hired our first architect. It was a hardware engineer 
holds computer science degree as well. You know, he's a the guy who holds about 40 something patents from Oracle. We asked him, because he's a hardware guy, we asked him, hey, can you go design a barcode scanner? Because we're buying off the shelf scanner for like $23 a pop. And we wanted to cut down that cost significantly by developing in-house. We asked him to build a module, but he built the whole full vertical stack and came to us like a week ahead and said, hey, look what I built. Wow. So that resulted in a solid hire. Since then, we've been just religiously doing that for every single hire we hired. The thing that we talk about internally between Rob and I is that, hey, the first 10 hires you make can either make or break your startup. That, that's actually an excellent way of doing it. And I, I really like the way you put it, try before you buy it. It kind of works both ways, right? For both yeah. startup as well as for the person joining. Yeah. Before I move on to the next chapter of your life, I also want to ask you, what was the significant upside of Haiku or in general of the entrepreneurial journey? Absolutely. So significant upside, ideally it would have been a lot of money in my account or maybe a yacht in Mexico, but that ideal uh, state didn't happen. Sure. However, there are a lot of outcomes out of this startup, meaning when I used to work at Palm or HP or BlackBerry, you're actually focusing on a narrow you know, sliver of a product or a problem space. And there's always somebody above you to guide you or, or delegate tasks to be done. Whereas in the startup world, it's all on your hand to make it either successful or a failure. So that means you have to fill all the gaps. You have to wear all multiple different hats. And by doing that, you're learning a lot. For example, I never dealt with running a customer service operations team before, but we were in the necessity to build one. Right. Working for Palm, we go to manufacturing sites to support, but I never had to deal with writing a PO, writing a master service agreement, negotiating prices, dealing with suppliers and trying to figure out the lead time, having to deal with uh, plastic manufacturer for tooling and stuff. So all that stuff, it's done by some other department for us, for smartphone companies or bigger corporations. You only go there to provide support for the space that you own, basically bootloaders. But in the startup case, I had to deal with all of them. There's, there's a lot of involvement and a lot of learning, that's something different. Yeah. At the same time, I have to be frugal. When you work for a corporation, you get put on a plane, you don't have to worry about money, yeah. you get to go stay in a five-star hotel, you'll get picked up in the morning, you get all that stuff. Whereas in a startup world, every dime counts. So you find the most frugal way to get some of these work done. I think a couple of really nice points over there. The first point that you made about the breadth of experience that you get that could be very exciting for anyone who's trying to broaden their vision yeah the, the frugal part i guess one could argue that it makes you more self-reliant right yeah uh, yeah i mean just because an investor gives you money doesn't mean we should be spending it we should be spending it wisely as a as an entrepreneur if you're co-founder with the larger equity stake you're in the uh, shoes of having to make sure that your team is with you. And there are people who come and work for you, doesn't get, I don't know, 20%, 30% of the company. They get smaller equity stake. That means you have to pay them higher. And in order to pay them higher, you need to be cutting back on your own uh, salary. Right. And also to figure out how you can be frugal on, 
other things, optimize for execution. Just because Jerry gave us 750K on a check doesn't mean I can just go uh, you know, a shopping spree. Right. 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 So let me come to the organization you founded called Aravanai. Could you tell us a little bit about the organization? Absolutely. Um, so the, the organization is just an extension from what I was part of back in Bay Area. There's a bunch of technology veterans, you know, longtime community members in the Bay Area who wanted to make an impact. Most of them are from northeast of Sri Lanka, where you know it, it went through a war and they were trying to help make those people in need independent. The goal was instead of giving them fish, teach them how to fish to make them financially independent for a long term. We were part of that team. We're helping what we call the uh, three pillars. We call it the EQ. The three pillars that we focus on are education, entrepreneurship, and employment. Drive initiatives that fosters all these three pillars. As a result, there's a local capacity being built. I've been part of that organization for the last you know, 15 years. I continue to be part of their board members. And when I relocated to Toronto, we have a large Tamil community in Canada. I was trying to tap into that talent and see how we can leverage them to contribute as well. I wanted to identify a few people with a similar mindset, and I found three people to be part of the board. One of them is uh, my high school friend, Baskar, the co-founder of Page of Duty. Another friend of mine who then was a director at a Canadian accelerator program called DMZ. I wanted to have the right talent to form the team and they all had their own complementary skills for me. So started the team. Since then, we've helped providing remote mentorships to aspiring entrepreneurs back home, bi-weekly or monthly mentorships, and then preparing teams prior to a competition, giving them guidance on how to create pitch decks to validate uh, product market fit. The other aspect is there is a six months coding accelerator program, essentially for kids who have graduated high school, but cannot get into university, either due to grades or financial struggle. The, the program that we helped bootstrap is a six months Angular or Node.js coding accelerator program for these kids. At the end of that program, they will get one year paid internship from some of the tech companies out there. I think right now it's in the ninth cohort over three different locations. In the beginning, it was 70% male students to 30% female ratio. Now that completely inverted, where there's 70% female students and then 30% male students. It's it's a win for us because we see more females getting into the tech space. And there's about 80% conversion rate as in they graduate and they get a full-time job. That's great. Uh, Congratulations Um, actually on such a phenomenal effort. We partner with an organization called Yala IT Hub on the ground. It's made up of about 160 or so volunteers in the community across the world. And they're, they're the one who's executing it on the ground. We're all part of that volunteer groups. Aravanai, the goal is to continue to focus on education, entrepreneurship, and employment. I am seeking out for more people to volunteer. If there's anyone who's willing to help to make an impact, It doesn't have to be in Sri Lanka. It could be even in India where there's an underprivileged community base and you want to make an impact. I would love to hear from anyone who's interested. And if they do, they can reach out to us through aravanai.org on our website. There's an onboarding form. Uh, Absolutely. We, We will make sure that we add all the website details in our show notes. Do you see a significant difference between founding a nonprofit organization versus a for profit? 
organization. You've done both. I mean, nonprofit is something around passion and want to give back, right. build a better community, especially because I came from a war-torn place and I know how it is. I have the privilege to live in a better world. I don't think everyone have that same privilege. So it's fair for me to give back and mobilize them. So I'm doing it because of my passion, but I will still go build a for-profit company, which is another passion of mine to go solve problem for profit. Those are two different things. Net-net, you have to have the passion to do any of that. Thank you so much, Rajan. This is very insightful. Any parting thoughts? I guess parting thoughts are persistence. If you're going to do something, there'll be a lot of people will say no to it or they will be against it. But if you believe in it, if you have that gut check that says, yeah, you want to do this, be persistent about it. Don't give up. There'll be 100 people who would say no to it. There might be one person who will say yes, latch onto that. That's going to keep you going to get something done. So at any cost, just because another person said no, don't walk away. I think that is really sage advice. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing that. And thanks for this fantastic interview. Thanks, uh, Ashwini, for giving me this opportunity. Please do check out the show notes to learn more about Rajan Bala, his startup venture, Haiku Labs, and also his commendable initiative, Aravanai. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Do send us your feedback at throughthecorporateclass.com and follow us on Twitter at Corporate Class. You can also email us at feedback at throughthecorporateglass.com. We'd love to hear from you.